and welcome to Making Our Way podcast, where we take a deep dive into the projects and creative process of our fellow makers. I'm Austin from High Caliber Craftsman, and I'm excited to join you for this episode with Dean Duplantis and Christy from Twisted Twine Woodworking. Hey guys, good to see you this week. Hey, hey. hey man. So Christy, what did uh, what did we make this weekend besides bad decisions? <laughs> Um, well, I didn't make too many bad decisions, but yeah, my sisters and, and family had a uh, bachelorette party for me this weekend. Yeah. Which, and it really was a lot of fun. The first time I got married, I was 19 years old. And so the extent of my bachelorette party was two of my bridesmaids. Um, and I go into Shoney's and Rala having dinner after the rehearsal. So, so it definitely was an upgrade and we actually went to a winery um, in the Jefferson City area, a beautiful location. They had their grapes out there that they are growing and they do all of that there. So I'm kind of curious um, when we talk to our guests to kind of find out. I know it's a different different kind of, of what they're distilling or what they're making, um, but I just, you know, kind of found that found that interesting. But, yeah, it was a it was a great weekend. We had a whole lot of fun. It was, um, yeah, what happens at bachelorette party stays at bachelorette party. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> so, Dean, what have you been up to? This weekend, I, if y'all recall a few weeks ago, I had the broken window and I did the tape job. Well, this weekend, I took it up another level of temporary fix. Um, I couldn't find a, a domestic Toyota dealer with the part I need. So, I tried to get a Lexus part because the LX570 and Land Cruiser are the same vehicle. And I got a few snooty, sir, we don't sell Toyota parts here. And then finally I I got some thinking I had an LX 570. I just wouldn't give them the VIN and ordered um, the Lexus part. They told me it'd be two weeks. So then I'm going to get a call right back. Sorry, sir. This part's on extreme back order. Uh, So then I I get a little desperate and I go online and I order one from the UAE. So it it shipped from Dubai (laughs) on Friday. So we'll see how long it takes to get here from Dubai and in how many pieces it is when it lands. It was only $40 US in Dubai. The part here was over a hundred. It was $40 with shipping to get it shipped from Dubai to my house. So we'll see how that works. In the meantime, I, uh, I decided to make a piece out of Lexan. So I went to Lowe's and they had a piece of quarter inch Lexan. Um, I measured, so I went outside with calipers. I measured the driver's window. I rolled it down, measured it. It was at like 0.22. So I'm like, oh, this is more than fine tolerance for gasket and everything. Well, I was going to try to just make a cardboard template, but I was like, I know I'm going to do this wrong. There's curves. It's just too much going on. So I'm going to take out the passenger side rear quarter window and use that as a template to trace onto the Lexan to make you know the cut. So I take the, I, now I take the other door port. So now both doors are missing windows. And I come back and I trace it and it goes flawlessly. And it actually worked out really great because I could um, bounce it on something and bend the Lexan to where it fit the curve of the window and made sure I got the right dimensions. And then I go back outside and I put the passenger side one back in and I go to roll the window up and I hear bonk, and I look and the window just falls down. So I spent an hour trying to figure out how to get the actuator arm back on the window without completely disassembling the door, which was a mistake. I should just took the door apart. Uh, And in the end, I was like, what would a Japanese manufacturer do? I know they would do everything that made no sense whatsoever. And so where I kept trying to reattach the arm in the obvious part where the hole is in the door frame, 
that was wrong. It needed to be on the opposite end where you can't see what you're doing <laughs> and you just have to go by feel and it slid right in window back up. So I, uh, I got that one back in and it went pretty well. I came out that night, Friday night, cut the Lexan out, fit in the gasket. And I said, okay, I'm not going to mess with this. I'm gonna wait till tomorrow. And I woke up at eight and at eight eighteen. I had the door part, the new quarter window in, the window rolled back up, the door put back together. Sweet. Under 20 minutes. So now I'm thinking about quitting my job and just doing that professionally, installing rear quarter windows in cars made from Lexan. There you go. <laughs> and in the in the end, I'm so happy with it. The tent job is crap. I didn't want to tent it before I put it in because I thought just moving the gasket around, I was going to mess up. The tent's not made to stick on Lexan. And I just wasn't sure about the adhesion. Well, the gasket on the inside of the window is larger than the gasket on the outside. So I cut it to fit on the inside gasket where you can see clear on the outside of the vehicle, but you have to look for it. I mean, nobody's looking at that. I'll tell you what it doesn't look like a bunch of duct tape on your right. window. So, um, I'm super happy with the job. I feel secure. I feel I can park my vehicle and it's not asking to be broken into. And, um, there's a good chance it's going to be on there regardless of when this window shows up from Dubai. Uh, until I'm ready to sell or trade it in. And even then I may still leave it in just to see if the dealer checks. I'm doubting that there's a box on the trade-in thing that says are all windows made of glass. <laughs> so that's what I'm going with. Good plan. What about you, Mr. Saunders? What you been up to? Uh, so this week I was actually building an outdoor shower. Um, yeah, my normal gig, right? <laughs> it's just, um, but I did take a little bit of uh, artistic leeway with it. And I decided to make it using uh, metal instead of just, just wood. Um, and I think that it looks a lot better than if I just used like some T one eleven or something like that. And, uh, it was easier to pass the wife's check of approval because it looks kind of modern. Um, I did, you know, the five, I think it's called five, five V panel. Um, it's actually metal roofing 29 gauge. And then, um, and then just kind of use that to wrap the shower. And then I used um, the same roofing I did on the blacksmith shop uh, for the top and, and painted it all black. Um, took a page from Stevie's book and then uh, did some cedar accent stripes and in, in the door. It came out really good. It looks like, you know, some kind of resort kind of thing, but it's funny. You said it passed the wife's approval. Cause when I showed my wife, she was like, Oh, I feel so sorry for his wife. And I said, why? I said, because she goes through what I go through a husband that just has shit. <laughs> <laughs> I said, yeah, I mean, a man wants a shower outside. What, what's wrong with the shower outside? I, I don't see the issue yeah. here. That's what, well, my wife says that she's like, why do you need a shower outside? I said, can I live Jesus? And I walk away and do whatever I want. <laughs> Well, at least good. you made it an attractive shower. It does look good. Yeah. I mean, it no, doesn't she, even necessarily look like a shower. You know what I mean? If someone, and I don't know, people's not necessarily driving by, but it doesn't look like a shower, an outdoor shower. It looks like a little added on shed outhouse. or, well, no, <laughs> it's right next to the house. But I thought it looked great. Yeah. It's, um, so one thing that's a little bit of a side effect of using the uh, metal roofing. I, so I did the whole shower and I built it on three sides and it's, it's built to be removable. So I can actually pick it up and take it away with my tractor. So if I ever don't want it, I can just pull it off the house. The only thing that's permanently mounted to the house and not even permanently, cause it's just screwed on is the plumbing. 
Um, cause I was able to actually just go underneath my house I, where I built that was where the original AC unit was on my house and the holes in the Brit were right there. So I just ran the plumbing right oh, where nice. they were. Yeah. So, um, and about 10 feet in was my hot water heater, um, where it came through the floor to run to the, the showers, um, that right there. So I was able to tap into the hot and cold and just use the pecs, which was super easy. Um, in fact, I even added a, um, garden hose outlet right next to it. Um, just to make life easy. I was like, well, I'm already underneath this house. Let's, let's do it while I'm here. Um, so it worked out really good. And the downside. So <laughs> when I finished, i finished the whole outside of the shower. Um, and then I determined I needed a deck in front of the shower just to like, kind of let you, so you step out of the shower and you're not standing in a bunch of, you know, water trying to get dressed mud. or whatever, or mud. Yeah. And, um, I was like, so after I finished the deck, I was like, okay, let's get on in there and finish the plumbing, you know, get the plumbing all done up. Well, by this time it's like three o'clock in the afternoon and I'm in a metal roof, metal sides. And it's just, it's straight like, you know, plantation owner hot box. It's just yeah, bad. Sauna. Yeah. It's hot. And I'm like, man, I'm a sweater already. <laughs> so I'm in there with my uncle and he's like, don't you dare work above me because I'm not having you raining down on me. He's like, I'm going on the ladder and you're going to be down here on the uh, crawl space. <laughs> so it's uh, he's like, man, you sweat watching me work. <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I am disappointed that I'm not going to be able to be out there for, for your uh, makers camp in a, in, let's see the last weekend of September. Yeah. I hope all of those attendees truly appreciate the time energy and money that you've invested on making various improvements around there. Cause I mean, you're really set up for, you know, hopefully this would go well and you don't, you know, curse never having a get together again, but I mean, you're really set up for doing all kinds of things out there now. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I think it's going to be fun. Um, I'm ready to be done with all the the projects for sure. And just get kind of back to my, my life as normal. But um, I was really happy with this. Like I'm not, like an art artist person or a designer or whatever. And when I, I just drew it up real quick and I was like, I think that'll actually look pretty cool. And everybody that saw it's like, that's not going to look good. That's not, and then when we finished, I was like, they're like, ah, it actually looks a lot better than I thought it was going to look. I'm like, eat those words, son. Never <laughs> <laughs> Dean, he gave me an 8.5 out of 10. So. Because you didn't have a handle or a towel holder. And I said, if you add those two, it'll be a 10.5 out of 10. But, you know, you, you got a lock on the outside, no handle and nowhere to put my towel. Uh, you saw in progress photos. So I did all touch up paint right. today. So you call them in progress. I call those the Grand Alexander. Yeah, the photos. Grand Alexander, Alexander 90% photos. Yeah. Yeah. And so if anybody out there wants to, uh, you know, sponsor uh, Austin Camp and send us some goodies to put in the swag bags and be featured in all the content. Uh, reach out to the making our way podcast and we'll make sure that uh, we get your sponsorship directed to the right, right place. <laughs> All right, guys, today we're joined by Sean Anger from Fox and Seeker Distillery. How are you doing, Sean? Oh, just doing great. Living the dream, Dean. Thanks for having me. Awesome, man. So I, I got the pleasure of meeting Sean here in Houston. He has a, a vodka, gin, bourbon, you, you name it, distillery. Uh, up in Houston and we got to taste some of his excellent products. And it was at that time I knew he had to come on as a guest. 
So Sean, why don't you uh, kind of tell the people who you are and what Fox and Seeker is? Yeah, thanks, Dean. Uh, my name's Sean Anger. I'm the co-founder and distiller at Fox and Seeker. Um, Fox and Seeker is a, a manufacturing distillery. Uh, we're a grain to glass operation, meaning we can drop a GPS pin on the field where we get our raw materials from. Uh, we know the farmers by name. Uh, we we know where our our raw materials, our ingredients come from, and the flavors they can produce. Uh, so right now we have vodka and a couple of gins in distribution and couple of fun projects we're working on the distillery uh, that excited, I'm excited to talk about uh, whenever, whenever we get to that point. Yeah. I uh, recently watched a couple of your YouTube videos. Uh, you guys did a great job on those videos to kind of give a little background of the business as well as what, um, what, what you're making there at the distillery. And the thing that jumped out at me is like what you mentioned, the grain to glass, because, you know, growing up on a farm, I can tell the difference between corn that is grown in my dad's garden and corn that's bought from the store or corn or potatoes that are, you know, we dug ourselves or not. I mean, you really, really can, can um, tell the difference of that. So I really appreciate that. How did that kind of come about? Where, why was that the focus? Yeah. So uh, to, to build on your comment, cause that that's so true. And I think it's something that's, commonly overlooked, not to any fault of the consumer. It's just the way industries have consolidated over the decades. But I was recently a part of, or was able to partake in kind of a study, if you will, and, and working with our grain supplier, they worked with Texas A&M to isolate five completely unique strains, uh, genetic strains of corn. And they were all uh, mash fermented and distilled in the same way. And uh, I was I was able to taste the raw distillate or or the you know the the distilled spirit coming off of the equipment individually against each other. And they are five completely unique spirits, uh, completely different. So you know it's commonly you know corn is commonly used in distilled spirits and. It's the base for a lot of, of vodkas, especially those that are made in the United States. And it's very common to think corn is corn. You know, it, it's just corn. Uh, but there's there's a lot more that goes into it. And, and the closer you get to the field uh, and talking to the farmers and the practices and the methods used, it all makes a difference in, in what kind of flavors you can pull from it. Uh, so to answer your question uh, uh, and and what we're about really goes back to just a passion for understanding flavors you can pull from those, those ingredients and, and where they come from and how that makes a difference. And that all started at a homebrew level uh, in my kitchen on the stovetop, filling up the house with all those beautiful aromas. Now, as far as tradition as well, so was, was your family homebrew type um, like your dad or anybody along that line, or is that kind of something that you, that you kind of started? No, actually, I, I will be the first. Um, I would say traditionally, my family is not <laughs> heavy in the alcohol space one way or the other, recreationally or professionally, otherwise, in, in any way you spin it. I really got hooked on the hospitality industry when I recognized the power that of community that it can build. And this can be applied to, you know, coffee or tea or beer or spirits, wine, you name it. But when you 
get drinks between people and put a table in between you, it, the whole dynamic changes. And two people that maybe otherwise disagree on things, you put a drink between them and, and share, you know, 30 minutes and you can find common ground pretty quick. Uh, and that's really where the inspiration came to me to really get into homebrewing, which ultimately led to Fox and Seeker. But homebrewing was, was an inspiration after, you know, having some disagreements at work and then going to happy hour. And then all of a sudden we solved all the company's problems. <laughs> it, it's amazing. The power <laughs> in happy hour, the power in happy hour. It runs. <laughs> so Sean, I'm curious, homebrewing to me, I think of beer. Did you do uh, spirits at home or is that a no, uh, taboo I was, subject? <laughs> no. Yeah. I didn't do any home distillation. Uh, that was something we, we trained up on, but distillation is really, uh, think about the, the process of home brewing. It, it's the same process you use before you distill. So essentially distilling is you make beer and then you cook off the alcohol and catch it. So, uh, really the same base process applies to distillation, but you don't always have to do distillation. So home brewing for me was purely for beer. Um, I like Belgian styles, Pilsners, a lot of the classic styles I was a big fan of. Um, and now it's too much like work. So I've kind of given <laughs> up on it. Yeah. We had made some beer. Um, my fiance, he, he does some, some homebrew and, um, yeah, it seemed like it took uh, a lot of time to make like a dozen bottles of beer. So I was kind of like, whew, this was, it was good. It turned out good. I was happy with it, but it definitely, um, definitely took some time. Now I'm curious, um, you know, Fox and Seeker kind of give us a little bit of, of where that name came from and, and, and how that came about. Yeah. So to break it down simply, Fox and Seeker, the two components of that name, the Fox represents nature and tradition and the Seeker represents innovation and never settling and always pushing forward. So status quo is our start line uh, and we're just always pushing forward. So that quite simply, that's how it breaks down and how we apply it to the business is, you know, the Fox, the nature tradition part of it is we're really embracing some classic styles with what we make, such as vodka and London dry gins, very classic staple uh, spirits, if you will. But we, we know exactly where all our ingredients come from. We know which fields they come from. We know what happened the season they were harvested, whether it was wet or dry. Um, and that all plays part of the Fox and the, the seeker component of what we do is kind of twofold. One in the equipment we use is not industry. I guess you could say traditional equipment. We don't have big copper pot stills that you, um, you see in all the documentaries on distillation where it looks mystic and classical. We have very cutting edge state of the art equipment. It's all stainless steel. It's programmable, uh, provided you put the same ingredients and processes, the same inputs to the equipment, it's very repeatable as far as the, the spirit that you're going to end up with as a result. And that's not common. Uh, a lot of the, the traditional uh, minds in the industry kind of, you know, they, they don't, they don't, they don't like that, you know, that, and that's something that's, you know, truly different in our approach uh, to how we, how we do it. And the other component of the seeker side is, uh, you know, we'll talk a little bit about it, but trying new things, new flavors, new creations that the the con that consumers aren't used to seeing from a distillery. 
Uh, we'll talk about a few of those here today. And, and because we're grain to glass and because of the equipment we use, it enabled, enables us enough flexibility to keep that economical and still have fun with it. You just said something that kind of clicked in my head. And I just wanted to see if, if you think about it the same way that I process what you just said. You talked about the traditionalists and how they don't like the repetitive, programmable, very regimented approach that you have. And I wonder if it's because to them, the art is in the chemistry and mistakes that come out that lead to different types of batches, different flavors of, you know, it's really an unknown until it's in the bottle. Whereas you guys purposely seek out creativity. You steer, okay, we're going to do our same inputs, but then we're going to add these known differences to try to create something new. I mean, is that a fair assumption of all that? Yeah, that that's a hundred percent fair. And, but historically, I think back to the very first days of distillation, nobody knew what the hell was going on. <laughs> you know, it was like, it, you know, they called it water of life because they, you know, it came out clear, you know, they had beer and then all of a sudden their cheesecloth wrung out this clear stuff that was really strong. And nobody understood what was happening on a, you know, on a technical level. But when you get down to it, distillation is a very technical process. It's, it's fairly black and white essentially you have a solution of ethanol and water. Uh, and, and I'm oversimplifying here. So for, for those that know the technical piece, they're going to be yelling at me, but <laughs> for at risk of oversimplification, you have a solution of ethanol and water, ethanol being alcohol and water being everything else. And the goal is to separate the ethanol from the water. And you do that by heating it up and cooking it off. Just like when you cook with wine or vodka, uh, the alcohol cooks off. That's essentially all we're doing. We're, we're applying heat to, to essentially reach the volatilization or the boiling point of ethanol, which is lower than that of water, such that it rises as a gas. And then we capture it through a heat exchanger and we peel it off of the solution. So at, at its core, distillation is a very technical process. So for a long time, nobody knew exactly what was happening inside the still. They just knew this is how you make really strong drink. <laughs> and there was, there was a very uh, artisan aspect to it, meaning flavor and aroma play a key role in knowing where to draw the line on when, when your spirit is good and when it's not good. Um, now to take the oversimplification and go a little deeper, other than ethanol, there, there's a rainbow of alcohol. Some of them boil off at a really low temp, some at a heavier temp. Some of those are not so good for you. Some of them smell and taste really bad. And knowing where to cut off uh, the equipment and your process is really important. So that's where the artistry historically came into play, where they would use essentially their palates, their nose and their, and their palate to tell them when they need to say, all right, I got what's good. Nothing else is going to be good at this point going forward. So now that we know so much more at a technical level about distillation, apply the right uh, tools to the equipment and you can tell exactly what's going on inside of the still. And, and you, can, you can control a lot more of your flavor outputs that way uh, just by knowing what, what is in your column or what gases you have coming up at what time. So in the process of, and I appreciate that exclamation explanation that made a lot of sense to me. So I, I appreciate that. So do you, do you send the 
the liquid through the distillation process multiple times, or is it a once it's gone through, it's through? That that's a great question, um, and it'll and, and you're you're allowing me to somewhat debunk one of the common marketing gimmicks out there, which is um, you know ten times distilled vodka or whatever you know number of times distilled vodka, right? And what I like to say to that is if someone is selling you a 10 times distilled vodka, they were either really inefficient, inefficient for nine times, <laughs> um, or, or they, uh, um, are using a marketing gimmick to try to drive sales. And normally it's the latter. Uh, nobody is going to distill a vodka and then distill it again, because once you've reached the the level of purity that it takes to to get a vodka by definition by law mm -hmm. you're not going to expend the utilities the energy to redistill it again you're not going to gain enough of a quality difference to really make it matter it, it's marginal so when you see number of times distilled typically what they're doing is if you've seen a column still and you see those those ports those windows going up the column uh kind of looks like a ladder mm -hmm they're usually just counting those plates. So if there's six ports, they'll say six times distilled or seven, you know, whatever. That's typically how, how the marketing has worked historically. Um, so to answer your question, the number of times distilled, we do two distillations. Uh, it's called a, uh, a stripping run and a finishing run. And essentially a stripping run is, is hot and fast. And then a, a finishing run is low and slow, just like a, a barbecue. And the low and slow allows us to get to a, a 95 to 96% alcohol by volume uh, spirit coming off the still, which is the base for our vodka, for our gins, and, and anything that uses a neutral grain spirit. It sounds like a good recipe in the bedroom too. The stripping <laughs> should be fast and then the, the finishing should be slow. You can... You never know what you're going to take away from, uh, from, from a technical lesson in distilling. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, um, you know, gin and vodka aren't the first things people necessarily think about. Why, uh, why'd you pick those two, you know, classic cocktails? So in a grain to glass model, a uh, business model, you know, they're, we we will be making aged aged inventory aged spirits you know whiskeys and potentially maybe some rums in the future but with aged inventory it just it takes time and we never know how long it's really going to take because that's something that is really left up to uh what's happening in the barrel which is a whole separate conversation but in order to essentially keep the lights on. You need something that you can manufacture on, on a relatively reasonable time scale and get, get to market. So since vodka and gin uh, are traditionally clear unaged spirits, then we can get those out of, of the shop in four to six weeks instead of, you know, six, nine, 12, 48 months. Um, so while we're letting our whiskeys, because we have whiskey in barrels now, uh, while we let it age, then we can we can manufacture the vodka and the gins to really garner interest in what we're doing uh, and help kind of use it as uh, you know we're very proud of the gins we make. They 
they've both been recognized um, by both wine enthusiasts and San Francisco Spirits World uh, World Spirits Competition. They've they've both gotten recognition, so we're very proud of the spirits we make. Um, so not to short short change uh, what we're adding to the market through gin and vodka, uh, but really since we can turn them quickly uh, from from just a business standpoint. We got to have something to uh, to to pay the bills while the whiskey and the aged products do their thing. Um, I, you know, something else you were talking about when you were giving the example of the stripping process and the you know fifteen thousand time distilled vodkas. I was always taught, you know, vodka is the best vodka is bland. The best the best vodka you don't taste, but that's not the approach y'all took. Could you tell us some more about the vodka and, and the decision y'all made on it? Yeah. So a lot of that goes back to legislation. I'll touch on that a bit, but historically vodka, you think of the, the countries that really embrace vodka, Poland, Russia, uh, uh, you look at what they do and they're very proud of embracing the ingredients they use to, to, to make the vodka and they highlight those flavors in, in their spirits. So and when you go and you buy a Russian vodka or Polish vodka, you expect there to be flavor present. Even the average consumer, I think, you know, goes in with that mindset. So in America or the States, for whatever reason, at some point, someone wrote into law that vodka needs to be flavorless, colorless, odorless, et cetera, et cetera. Basically, it has to be nothing. And that was by definition, by law. That was what had to be in order to put vodka on the label. So, you know, and a lot of that's subjective. So, you know, you could argue it all day in in court if it ever came to that. But what it really comes down to, it's a process thing. So back to making a distiller's beer, you know, if you're making a 10% beer and then you you boil off your 10%, then you have a spirit. If you make a 16% beer and you boil off your ethanol, you have a different spirit. And the difference is when you ferment to a higher alcohol content, yeast can only tolerate certain levels of alcohol. So the yeast does the fermentation, creates the alcohol. Once the yeast makes too much alcohol, they actually create an environment that's toxic to themselves. So they start putting off off flavors. They find other things to metabolize other than sugar. They're just trying to survive. So if you can imagine yourself and like a really stressful environment and you're just trying to survive, you know, after you're done with that, you don't, you know, you don't smell too great. You don't feel too great. <laughs> the same thing's happening with yeast. You put them in an environment where they're stressed, they're going to put off off flavors and you can't distill away all of those off flavors. They, they come over in, in the spirit. So what was deployed for, for, um, for a lot of the big producers that make a lot of the vodka on the market, they will ferment to really high alcohol contents to increase their yield, uh, to increase their efficiencies, their utilization, their equipment, all that stuff. To get rid of the off flavors, you put it through a process called charcoal filtration. And charcoal filtration, it strips all of that bad stuff out. So you can't taste it anymore. It also strips all of the good stuff out. So what you're left with is nothing. I mean, it's, it's truly, it's just, it just smells like alcohol. Um, so there's, there's zero character to it. There's zero flavor to it. Um, it just has that, that traditional sting in the nostril and that's your vodka. Um, 
So I don't know the whole story of how that got written into law, but my guess is uh, there was probably some lobbying behind uh, behind that definition such that only big producers who make the, the stuff that doesn't taste like anything uh, could fall into that definition and then others would struggle to match it. So that has since been removed from the definition of vodka as of last year, I believe, is there 2019 or 2020? They removed the colorless, odorless, flavorless definition. So now vodka just has to be distilled to a certain purity and flavor and odor doesn't play a role in the definition of vodka anymore. And there is a ton of cool flavors you can get out of a vodka, even when you distill it to the purity that, that you need to, to call it vodka. Perfect example of this, the uh, good lead into our dis discovery series. Our Texas vodka uses 80% Denton County corn and 20% Denton County wheat, uh, soft red winter wheat. And we ferment it with a yeast that's traditionally used to, to create neutral flavored spirits. And we that's what makes our Texas vodka. Our Texas vodka is a little citrus on the nose, uh, citrus and vanilla. Uh, Dean, you've had it, so you can help me out if, if I'm not describing it well enough. But citrus and vanilla, uh, if you're a whiskey drinker, if you're heavy into whiskeys, you're going to pick up a little bit of, of that grain character. If you're a tequila drinker, uh, we do get a lot of feedback that it tastes like a, a, a Blanco tequila and uh, or, or it smells like a Blanco tequila. And whenever you taste it, you get a light grain sweetness on the front and then creamsicle on the back. Orange and vanilla just kind of lingers. And there's a warmth there that you typically don't find in a vodka. Um, so that's our Texas vodka. That's what's in distribution right now. It, it's a it's a great spirit. It goes great on ice. That's all you need. And then. Separate from that, in our discovery series just released in August this month, uh, we made a vodka also with 80% Denton County corn, 20% red soft red winter wheat, also from Denton County, same ingredients. We fermented to the same alcohol content. Uh, we distilled it the same exact way to the same levels of purity. The only thing we changed was the yeast strain. And we used the yeast strain typically used to ferment brandies. And brandies are just fruit-based, so like wine that's been distilled. So it's used to fermenting in fruit instead of fermenting in grains. But we we thought, what the hey? Um, so we uh, we were playing with some uh, uh, some production variables to see if we could have a more efficient fermentation with it, and we did. And uh, we were blown away by the difference in the aroma and flavor of the vodka. Uh, with only that one change. Wow. So it's got a very mango nose. Uh, it's got a very creamy mouthfeel. It's, it's a lot more viscous um, and it, it disappears quickly. So the Texas vodka, it, it lingers. There's a creamsicle warmth that hangs around and this discovery series vodka. It just, it doesn't have that finish. It just drinks nice and clean. It just goes away. And it's all because of the yeast. And there's no other variable you can attribute it to. So it kind of, it, even to me, it opened my eyes to the possibilities in vodka uh, because even I was skeptical of the amount of difference it would make, but it's a completely different product. Uh, so uh, it's really exciting. If you come to our tasting room, you can have them side by side and it's, it's a really cool experience. That's really cool. And so basically you being kind of a smaller batch distillery, 
is what enables you to do all this experimentation. And, and it kind of, it's, it's almost like your superpower versus these massive conglomerates. And it also ends up with a better product. So it's like the best of both worlds for you guys and the best of both worlds for the consumers that get to come in and try them. Yeah. And the, you know, the, the trick is, I think just, just talking through a business lens here is the education component because a lot of consumers don't understand that the industry dynamics at play and that, I I don't know the exact number, but I would not hesitate to say over 90% of the vodka on the market uh, that is made in the United States comes from one of two producers. And it's just, it's just repackaged under a local brand name. So knowing uh, uh, having control over the entire process uh, of making a spirit enables us that advantage for sure. I was wanting to jump over to the business side um, of your, how your startup. And I'm just kind of curious, what extra steps did you have to go through to get licensed and how does that necessarily work, especially in Texas? Ooh. Ooh. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a heavy one. So we, we went through, um, we went through a lot of, uh, a lot of learning points, let's say along the way of getting permitted, we went through a couple of addresses. Um, and for one reason or another, uh, didn't come to fruition. One of those being a permitting reason, but fundamentally how it works is, um, I think this is the easiest way to explain the complexity, but we have to be permitted by the country, uh, by the U S uh, we have to be, uh, permitted by the state, uh, by the County and the city. Um, what and about mob payoffs? Were there any mob payoffs? <laughs> <laughs> no. no comment. The uh, the uh, the the state permit really feeds the local level permits. So, and this is just for distilling. This isn't talking like health code or occupancy or anything like that. This is just the ability to distill alcohol. Um, the county and and the city typically just look to the state and say, "Hey, state, if you permitted them, we're cool." Uh, just here's the fee. Uh, so when you get down to it, it's really just two governing entities that permit you to distill or, or do a thorough review, review to give you a permit to distill. Um, they don't talk to each other and they have um, sometimes conflicting regulations. And, you know, so it, it's really independent projects that you have to stitch together individually as a business to understand what each party is looking for um, to make sure you comply with both in full uh, through the entire process Um, beyond just the, the distilling permits, which all in that's a six to nine month process. Um, And you need to have a signed lease in order to apply. (laughs) To apply. To apply. So you're in an empty space for six to nine months. That's correct. Yeah. So it, it, they, they really make it prohibitive to, um, they, they, there's a lot of barriers to starting up, um, not really just distilleries, but this applies to breweries and wineries also in Texas also follow this, this, this process. So a signed lease is a prerequisite. 
and it all goes back to prohibition. Um, and, and I could talk forever on this. It's a fascinating <laughs> topic for me, but they, they really want to make, um, they really want to remove the profit motive from distilled spirits specifically the, the Rockefellers. So way back in prohibition, Rockefellers were teetotalers, didn't drink. Uh, they were against alcohol. It was, I don't know, a couple of years into prohibition. They're smart enough. They're looking, they're looking at the landscape and they're like, this guys, this ain't working, <laughs> you know, pro prohibition is not a good idea. Right. So they paid for a study. They paid, I think it was three guys, two or three guys to travel the world and study other countries and how they regulate alcohol and then bring the best practices back to the United States so we can form a report and give it to the government. So essentially the result of that study was give the people beer and wine uh, because humans, for whatever reason, need alcohol. Uh, you can't remove it from their life or you'll have what's going on in the U.S. today uh, or in the 30s. And uh, so give the people beer and wine, but remove the profit motive from distilled spirits because people can't control themselves. Liquor is too strong. And so it was really... So all of the regulations you see today still are, are a derivative of that report, even up until the point where, you know, up until last year, distilled spirits were taxed at, I don't even know the multiple, eight times or nine times, 10 times what a winery or, or wow. a brewery gets taxed on, on just an alcohol, you know, drop to drop alcohol to alcohol basis. We get taxed that much more. Hmm. Um, and then the three-tiered systems, another way to drive cost in the middle of the equation such that you separate the manufacturer from the consumer, which was the whole goal for them. Um, they were, the consensus was if the manufacturer is allowed to go directly to the consumer, then they're going to get super cheap booze and they're going to drink themselves to death. And that, that was, you know, bullet point summary. That was what it said. So let's create layers of regulatory stuff to drive up the cost, to remove the profit motive and, and, then ultimately make it more expensive for the consumer to partake. So Sean, that was something I wanted to ask you, you know, I can go on smoke wagons website, who is a whiskey distillery in Nevada, and I can order a bottle from there to my house. Why can't you do that in Texas? Um, so. Texas right. in this te might be a dumb question. No, it's not a dumb question because okay, it's ahead. a, it, it is a huge point of, uh, consternation in the state of Texas. So another derivative of this report was that you cannot have federal oversight over alcohol. It doesn't work. Um, we saw what happened when the feds tried to regulate alcohol. Mm -hmm. You got Al Capone, you got, you got all that stuff. Mm -hmm. um, actually, uh, with the big Canadian whiskey, uh, Canadian mist mm -hmm. or, or something, it, whatever that distillery is in Canada, it, it's on the other side of Michigan. Um, to date, their highest volume years were prohibition. <laughs> so, I mean, it, the, uh, it, it, you know, this is what happens when you try to put federal oversight over something like alcohol is you're going to get mass corruption. People are going to get bribed off and all this stuff. So they said the states need to regulate alcohol. That's the only way to, to have some kind of control over this. So the states regulate distribution. Um, so every state is different. In the state of Nevada, I don't know their laws specifically, but it's it's probably 100% legal for them to 
DTC, direct to consumer, uh, DTC, their, their spirits. In Texas, that is not legal. We cannot ship any spirits uh, to any consumers anywhere. If, if you're moving a bottle of, of distilled spirits, spirits specifically, uh, if you're moving a bottle of spirit, it, it needs to go through a distributor, period. Um, which is why we can sell alcohol direct to the consumer, but it has to be at our distillery and the consumer has to leave with it. We cannot hand deliver it. We cannot put on UPS. We cannot do any of that stuff. So uh, anytime it leaves our facility, it has to go through the distribution tier, the middle tier uh, in, in, in the regulatory sphere. Now that said, we Texas distilleries cannot ship to consumers, out-of-state distilleries technically cannot move a bottle through Texas um, unless it goes through a distributor. So if they're claiming they can ship direct to you, um, that's not your fault, um, but that's something they should probably look Yeah, into. so for full clarity, I have not done this, but um, I, I think they use a middle, a middle group that receives the alcohol and yep. then they are distributing it to you. Um, and so I don't yeah, know who that group is or, or what cloak and dagger network they're working, but. Yeah. So like services like Drizzly and, and things like that, they're delivering spirits after they've gone through the three tiers already. So yeah. you're going to pay a premium for that, but it's basically gone through the manufacturer, the distributor, the retailer even. So through a specs or a total wine, and then they're buying it at that cost and then delivering it to you with a markup, which they're, I don't know. I don't know exactly how that side of, of the code works with TABC, but uh, there, there's a way to do it, I guess, but so, it has to go through the three tiers. I know we're running close on time. I had one more thing I was really curious about, and then uh, we'll pitch it to Austin for the uh, concluding question. Um, how did you come up with the recipes without having some kind of, you know, taste blindness or confirmation bias? Like, how did you know it's this batch? It's, this is the one we need to go with, not the 15 other concoctions. This is the batch we want. Yeah. Great question. So, oh, there's a lot of vodka out there. That's hundred percent corn. So we started there and understood what corn did. And the, the, I guess we, we took advantage of what's called the sacrificial batch. But when you, when you break in your equipment, just like when you season a skillet, uh, you, you have to do a batch that's sacrificial. So on our sacrificial batch, we, we did a hundred percent corn and even though it was sacrificial, um, you know, did some, some small samples to understand what the flavor carryovers were from hundred percent corn. And then the next batch, we started weaving in some wheat to see how that changed the character. And that's ultimately what led us to our right, 80-20 is our ratio. And we just went forward with it because we really liked the, the layer of complementary flavor that, flavor that the wheat added. Now, that's the vodka. It's also the base for our gin. Gin is a whole separate segment. And how we did that was we essentially took some of our first batch of vodka and and separated it from the, the bigger batch and we used it for R&D. We have a five liter or uh, about a one gallon still. It's an R&D still. And we uh, distilled each botanical individually. 
And we distilled them individually and in different ways to understand the, the way the oils come over in a gin. Um, so for those unfamiliar with gin, most gin, I'd say an overwhelming majority, probably 95 plus percent of gin starts as a vodka uh, by definition. And then you add botanicals to your vodka in different ways and you distill it one more time. And the botanical oils are volatile enough that they come over with the ethanol. And so, so gin is really vodka with botanicals added and distilled an additional time. And that's how you incorporate uh, the beautiful flavors of gin uh, is just really through that extra, extra distillation cycle. So we did that on a one gallon scale. Uh, it took us 37 tries to get our botanical mix right on a one gallon scale. And each batch takes three hours. Um, so it took a lot of time, but our first uh, batch of London dry gin off of our commercial scale, uh, our first commercial scale batch London dry gin won a silver medal at um, San Francisco World Spirits Competition. And since it was the first scaled up batch, you know, to me as a distiller, there were some things I wanted to improve on, but to get a, a silver on that <laughs> first batch was, um, you know, we're really proud of how that came out and we've only gotten better. We've made some tweaks um, to the recipe, you know, very subtle tweaks that just help all the flavors come together just a little bit better. But that's how we build our gins is one ingredient at a time, one botanical at a time. So after 30 for, taste test invites, where they like, Sean, I've got work in the morning. I can't keep doing this. <laughs> yeah. And you know, it's, uh, it, it you can kind of categorize botanicals into different groups, you know, whether they're floral, whether they're seed based or cone based, different things. And, and I've done it enough times now. I kind of, I, I can kind of visualize how the flavors are going to come over. Um, so after doing enough repetitions, you kind of get some, some foresight into how they're going to play. But then there's some that you smell them. It's like, it smells like black pepper and distill and it smells like a flower. It's unbelievable. Some, some of the, the, the flavors you, you, can, you can get in, in uh, gin distillation. Um, the whiskey, you know, whiskey is, is a combination of several grains. Uh, to call it bourbon, it's got to be minimum 50% corn. But then everything else is, I mean, it's your playground. You can put whatever you want once you've reached that 50, 50% of corn. So we, uh, we essentially, we took uh, 58% corn. Um, and really that was kind of a dart throw um, because most mass produced whiskeys are in the 60 to 70% corn range. And I always find them to be a little too much corn forward. So I just went below that threshold a little bit, um, 15% uh, blend of barleys. And then what you have, what's called an accent grain or what I call an accent grain to, to almost every whiskey. So if you hear of like a, a weeded bourbon um, or a rye bourbon, uh, that accent grain, that's what they're declaring in that title. So we have one that's uh, rye, one that's wheat, one that's um, triticale, which is a genetic hybrid of rye and wheat. So it's its own grain, hmm. but it's uh, it it is they they essentially cross pollinated uh, rye and wheat to to form it. Um, all of these are grown in the Panhandle of Texas, so all Texas grains. And uh, we don't know what our fourth barrel is going to be yet. I think it might be a hundred percent of one of the corn varietals I tried um, uh, earlier this year. But 
what we're doing in these four batches is learning. Uh, for I mean, ultimately, we'll end up bottling and putting them out uh, to the market. But it's teaching us a lot about what the different influence of the grains, the different yeasts, the different char levels on the barrels, what all that's going to contribute into an end product. Once these four barrels uh, get closer to maturation, we'll kind of pick our poison, if you will, and and put together a, a whiskey program, a formal whiskey program, where we're laying down barrels, you know, every every single week or every other week, uh, and really building out a portfolio of aged inventory. So we have this one thing that we always do with each guest. Um, typically, it's workshop oriented, but we ask if there was three tools that you had to pick to take with you, you know, like desert island scenario, what would be the three things that is in your toolbox that you would choose to take with you? Well, you can ferment anything with sugar. So I imagine if I'm on a deserted island, I'll find a way to find sugar. Um, you know, whether it's in, in the soil or in, in some sort of coconut, something, I'll let it ferment and I'll need my one gallon still. So I need my one gallon still. Um, uh, so I can make some some true to the deserted island spirits. Um, probably, uh, let's see. I would say a shovel, um, because I would probably want to have some sort of underground shelter, uh, just to keep the temperature at bay. And then let's see, that's a very practical answer there. Say something, uh, I thought you were going to dig a hole to age the spirits in. You know, the dual purpose, you know, <laughs> dual purpose. Uh, let's see. Third tool. You know, I'm not too good at, I, I've tried the whole rubbing the sticks together thing. <laughs> and I'm pretty terrible at it. So I'd probably take a lighter. <laughs> <laughs> good choices. Like a shovel, a lighter and a one gallon still. That's it. I'll be, I'm a happy camper. And the best part about a one gallon still, you can fill it with water and distill the water so you can drink the water. Perfect. Multi-purpose all around. That's That's it. it. Everybody needs a a storm generator and a one gallon still. (laughs) (laughs) I guess I'd need solar panels to power it, but that's, that's for another time. Yeah. All right, Sean. Well, I think, uh, I mean, this was really different and, and really enjoyable. We, I think we all learned something mm-hmm. uh, about the distilling industry and, and how scientific it all is. And so we really appreciate your time. Why don't you tell everybody where they can find you or, or find Fox and Seeker? Yeah, thanks. Uh, so you can follow us on social media. We're on all, all the major ones, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn. Um, you just Google our name. It, it should pop up. Um, from a spirit standpoint, we're distributed uh, pretty widely in Texas and growing, but primarily in Houston, you can find us in almost any specs in Total Wine. In Austin, we're we're in Twin Liquors, Austin Shaker, Wiggy's Liquor, and we're just starting to get into the Dallas Dallas market. You, but you can find us there as well. If you go to our website, uh, we have a map feature. There's a Find Us button, uh, and it pulls up on Google Maps. You do it on your mobile. It'll it'll drop pins all around you um, as to where you can pick up our our uh, our spirits. So um, that's the best way to find us. Otherwise, uh, you know, reach out to us directly through our website. If you want to come by for a tour, um, happy to show you around and, and let you sample uh, some of the stuff uh, we're producing. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks, Thank Sean. you guys. Bye bye. Yep. See you guys. See you later, Sean.
So that was a really good interview. I definitely learned a lot. Um, I was a little jealous though, Dean, watching you uh, sip on your drink. How tasty was it? Oh, it was a good drink. And you know, uh, actually I had just opened the vodka. I had my wife open it. That's the one I got uh, in the stamp deal. Um, So I I made him a stamp and went up to the distillery and then bought a bottle of vodka on that trip. Uh, But Austin, I, I was thinking about you. You had a little something happen this weekend that might have led you to need a bottle of vodka. Right. So I'm actually, this is while I was making the shower. I'm in the crawl space and all my phone rings and it's my bank. And I'm like, oh man, let me try to answer this. So I answer the phone and they're like, hey, uh, we just wanted to check and make sure that you just made like 30 something purchases from the Apple store, all the same dollar amount in a row over and over and over. And I was like, no, why would I do that? Like, no, of course not. (laughs) I said, um, you know, what's the, I said, hang on, I'm underneath the house. Let me crawl out so I can actually see what's going on. So finally I get it. And somebody had got my business account, uh, like the debit card, the visa card, whatever, and just charged up $94 and 99 cent charges and just emptied like down to, I think they left me a hundred bucks. Um, and I'm like, you guys, didn't stop. I mean, how many does it take before you guys are like, there's no way this is real. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, like stop them before you call me. Like, you know, and if it's me, I would call you and say, Hey, why'd my card quit working? You know? Right. It's yeah. unreal. Wow. Unreal. You mind me asking how many transactions? It was a lot. <laughs> it, was, it was a lot. <laughs> it was way more than it, they should have let slide through. And so uh, did what, how did so where are you at now with it? I mean, this is, this was days ago, right? Yeah. So that was, uh, today is, uh, Tuesday okay. and that was, I was either Thursday or Friday. That, no, it would have been Friday. It yeah. Friday. Cause I was doing the plumbing on Friday. So, and the money's not back and I'm like, Hey guys, um, you know, I got payroll <laughs> getting ready to come <laughs> out and I've got a hundred dollars to, you know, so I'm going to be able to, Hey, Chick-fil-A is on me, guys. That's what you're getting paid this week. (laughs) So the question is, how do we find them and make them pay? I don't know, man. It's uh, I thought it was weird that they would choose the Apple store. I don't know if there's a way that you can turn that. Well, because it's not trackable, I guess. I I would think it would be, but I was wondering if there's a way they can turn that into gift cards or if that's a way they can turn it into something that's more valuable than just like iTunes. You know what I mean? Like, Well, could it... Could it be that like if it was an employee, let's say at the Apple store and they were able to like if someone let's say someone came in and paid fifteen hundred dollars cash for a phone or whatever, and they wanted to ring up fifteen hundred dollars on a credit card so they can pull that cash out of the drawer. Right. That would be that'd be my thought. You know, I think they're loading an Apple wallet with that money. Oh. And that's a big thing with Apple is it, it's not, you know, they're big on security and your privacy is important. So I, th- I think they were probably loading an Apple wallet with $94 gift cards, uh, thinking that was an amount probably below the trigger, which that's below my trigger right. to be notified yeah. of mm-hmm. 125. Um, man, had that anything ever like anything like that ever happened to you before? Yeah. So well, uh, my, this was all my business. I don't have a credit card now, but back in the day when I was building surfboards, I had a business credit card because it was like super into debt during winter. And then, pay everything off during summer. That was just like our typical cycle. And, um, I remember one, one day, a 
somebody ran up my credit card for like 14 grand worth of performance Ooh. boat parts right around the corner from my house, right yeah. around the corner from my house at the, there's a Marina right down here. And, uh, I called the credit card company and I was like, Hey, what's going on? They're like, Oh, we thought it was you. You know, you make big purchases at boat stores because I was buying fiberglass and resin. They thought it was me. Uh, but this guy's buying like motors and all kinds of stuff. And, oh, wow. uh, I, I taught when I was talking to him, like, so this place is right around the corner from me. Should I just go in there? And they're like, sir, do not go in there. We'll, we'll <laughs> handle it. And I was like, I'll just go talk to them. And they're like, we cannot advise you enough to not go in that building. <laughs> like they were super worried about it, but what, what they, they ended up coming back and they're like, it's probably not even somebody in that building. They were somehow using it. You know, I don't know exactly how it works, but they were saying that it most likely wasn't somebody in that building. They were just using their machine, their machines or whatever, something like that. That could have also been her talking me off the ledge of showing up into the yeah. marina of violence. And then you sue and chase bank. Yeah. Or, so this has happened to me a bunch. Um, my favorites are uh, when I was a younger man, they got my credit card information. I didn't have any money. And so they took all that I had, which wasn't a lot. And they used that to buy a match.com subscription <laughs> and English lessons. And so when I called to, to complain, they were like, well, are you sure that this wasn't you or your wife that purchased this stuff? It's like, I think my wife would have a problem with me getting a match.com subscription. And I hope it sounds like I don't need English <laughs> lessons. Like, how does this make any sense whatsoever? And they're like, oh, I guess that's right. And so they gave me my money back. It's just, it's just a bummer, man. Cause I'm like, what kind of dirt bag? Like, come on, yeah. man. Dirt bag. You know, just anyways, it, uh, it put me into a, a little bit of a funk and it's screwed up my plumbing because I'm like, I had, <laughs> my kids are inside the house. They're like, daddy, when do we get water back? I'm like, give me a minute. I can handle this before I can turn the water back on, you know, cause I, we're on a well. So I had to kill the inline, the, you know, the, the water coming in so I could cut into the, the cold line. But yeah, it's, uh, it's always a bummer. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a review and subscribe. If you want to reach out to us or you know a maker with a fantastic project that deserves a deep dive, send us a message on Instagram at Making Our Way Podcast. You can find all of our latest individual content on Instagram and YouTube. I'm at Twisted Twine Woodworking. Austin is at High Caliber Craftsman. And Dean is at Dean underscore DePlantis. Have a great day. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks for joining us, man. And um, just one other real quick question and you can just answer this honestly. So so for our race engine uh, fuel that we make, do you think we should switch that to 80% corn, 20% wheat? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Your exhaust might get a nice sweet vanilla note to it. Excellent. That's what I figured you'd say. It would probably help with all this road rage. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.